My name is David, and I serve as one of the assistant pastors. And it's my privilege this morning to introduce our guest preacher this morning. For most of you, he is well-known. Hugh Welchel and his wife, Leslie, are longtime members of the church here. Hugh has served us faithfully as a ruling elder for a long time here, and so he's familiar to uh, many of you. If you don't know Hugh, he's the executive director of the Institute for Faith, Worth, or uh, work and economics, and so there's no one better to uh, talk to us about the topic of work today. Uh, he's a published author. He's written a book, How Then uh, Should We Live? I think it's available uh, in our book nook. And I should also mention uh, that on September 29th, uh, we'll be offering one of our adult education classes here in this building beginning on September 29th that Hugh will be uh, teaching as well uh, on this topic. It's where we spend a majority of our lives. If you think about the number of hours that we spend at work, and it's not an area uh, that God has not spoken about. And so Hugh brings a wealth of experience from a diverse uh, background, business background. Uh, he has degrees from Reformed Theological Seminary. And the only thing that I don't like about Hugh is that he graduated from the University of Florida, my school's rival. And so um, that's the only thing that I can think of negatively about Hugh. I love this man. He's meant a lot to me in my life. And I know that you'll be blessed uh, by his preaching this morning. So let me pray for him and for us as he opens God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Hugh for his lifetime of study and devotion to your word, for his faithfulness to you as a husband, as a father, and as a churchman. Father, would you use all of these things in your spirit in him to speak powerfully your word to us. May we be receptive, give us ears to hear, and hearts to believe your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, David. I sure appreciate the opportunity to be able to speak to you guys this morning. Um, I'm going to actually sit down. I've had a little problems with my uh, foot recently, so I figured Jesus taught when he sat down, I can probably get away with it as well. Plus, I'm probably one of the few people that can sit down and still see over the pulpit, so <laughs> we're in good shape. Our text this morning comes from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. You can find that on page 656 in your pew Bible. And we'll be reading uh, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord for it on its behalf, for it, for in its welfare, you will find welfare. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me for a minute. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time together. Father, we would ask that you would be in our midst and that we could leave this place different than we came, not because of anything I've said, 
but because your Holy Spirit is dealing with our hearts and our minds as we look at your word. We just thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the mid-90s, I was down in central Florida running a small computer company. And one of my duties was to, um, to manage a large group of salespeople. Now, if you've managed a group of salespeople or if you've been a salesperson, you know that one of the key things is keeping everyone motivated. So I gathered up my crew and took them down to downtown Orlando to see uh, one of the largest motivational conferences that had been there in a long time. General Colin Powell was speaking. Uh, Dick Vitale from the um, ESPN was there speaking. Tony Robbins, the tall, geeky guy you see on Late Need Tightening. I mean, it was the motivational conference to end all motivational conferences. And I don't remember who it was, but one of the speakers came up and began his talk this way. He said, you went home tonight and found that a long-lost relative had left you $10 million. Would you be at work tomorrow? A large no rang out across the whole stadium. And I can remember sitting there thinking, of course I wouldn't. I would go do something important with my life, something important to God. Maybe I would go back to seminary, become a pastor, or maybe go out on a mission field and become a missionary. Because see, back then, I really believed that people that were in what I would call full-time Christian service were they really on the cutting edge of what God was doing in the world. And a business guy like me, I was kind of a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. And what I did really didn't matter too much. In fact, if you'd asked me back then, Hugh, what do you do that's important to God? I would have told you why. I'm an elder at my church. I teach adult Sunday school. I work with some nonprofit boards. I never would have said I run a computer company to the glory of God. It just was not in my thinking. See, my problem is that I did not understand the why, the biblical why of my work. I didn't understand why God had called me to run a computer company. And I have found over the last eight years at the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics, a lot of people fall in that same trap. In fact, we are going to take a look at our text this morning. I think this is another example of a group of people who have lost their why. They really don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Probably for good reason. You see, to set the context of this passage, we have to understand, uh, actually, what I'd like to do is just imagine a huge refugee camp on the edge of the greatest city in the world. The time is the 6th century B.C. The city, the great city of Babylon. The exiles, what's left of the children of Israel. These exiles had seen things that no one should ever have to see. They saw an invading army come into Jerusalem, break down the walls, put their friends, their neighbors, their family members to the sword. They saw the city of Jerusalem destroyed by this army, and including Solomon's temple, the center of Jewish worship, absolutely destroyed. And in that add insult to injury, the Babylonian army gathered together the best and the brightest that were left and marched them almost a thousand miles back to Babylon. Because see, 
Nebuchadnezzar had a very unique strategy. What he would do is he would gather up the best and the brightest of the nations he conquered, and he would not make them slaves like a lot of other countries did. But instead, he let them be assimilated back into the culture of Babylon. And that's what he planned to do with the Israelites, except the Israelites would have no part of it. So there they are, sitting in this refugee camp. And we read there's false prophets that are out telling the Israelites that don't go down into that city Babylon. Don't be assimilated by these terrible Babylonians. God is going to raise up a great army and he's going to come smite these evil people. And then we'll be able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. So there they wait, day after day after day. One of the psalmists give us a unique insight into the mindset of these exiles. He writes in Psalm 137, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And so there they are in this incredibly uh, far from their home and refugee camp waiting day after day after day. Then one day, not an evading army, not an army of God, but a letter arrives from the prophet Jeremiah. See, Jeremiah was an old dude, so he got left behind. And what he tells them is really quite startling. He basically says, I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is God still loves you and has a plan for you to prosper. The bad news, you're going to be here for a while. You better get used to it. And see, what Jeremiah is actually doing, he's reminding them of their why. Because he's telling them it doesn't matter where you are, what God intends for us to do is always the same. In fact, when they heard this passage that we read a minute ago, they would have automatically thought of another passage in their Bible. Now, their Bible was much smaller back then. We know for sure that it had at least the first five books of Moses, maybe had some other books as well. But they would have heard the text that we read this morning and automatically thought about a text in Genesis 1. In fact, actually, Genesis 1, 28. I'll read it to you. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living culture that moves on the ground, every living creature that moves on the ground. You see, what God was telling Adam and Eve, and really this takes place on the last day of creation, on the sixth day of creation. God's almost finished. But he comes to Adam and Eve and says, let me tell you why you're here. Let me tell you what your job description is. I put you here to do two things, fill the earth with images and subdue the earth. Now, Nancy Piercy in her book, Total Truth, says this about that passage in Genesis. She said, the first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world, build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws, The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. 
This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create culture, build civilizations, nothing less. Old Testament professor Christopher Wright adds this to it because he's reassuring us that this mandate hasn't gone away. It still speaks to the exiles and it speaks to us who live as exiles in a postmodern culture and post-Christian culture. Christopher Wright says this, the human mission has never been rescinded and Christians have not been given some exemption on the grounds that we have other things or better things to do. You see, this cultural mandate, this idea of subduing the earth and filling with God's images still pertains to us today. In fact, I would go as far to say as the gospel is a redemptive call to fulfill a lost and forfeited calling to fill the earth with images and to subdue the earth. Let's talk about this idea of filling and subduing for a moment. When you look at this idea of filling the earth with God's images, we have to change it a little bit today because of Adam's fall into sin and, and all of our sin. What we have today to say today is our job is to fill the earth with redeemed images. And you see, that's evangelism. That's discipleship. That's families. That's, that's the things that we do in the church. And I would suggest we've done a, a fairly good job of that. But the other half of this command, the idea to subdue the earth, has been completely lost on most of us. And it really, in that command, contains the very why of why we work, regardless of what your job is. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're washing dishes or if you're running a Fortune 500 company, if you're a stay-at-home mom, or you're running a huge um, a nonprofit like I am. Right? doesn't matter. The word subdue in that passage is literally the Hebrew word kabosh. And in that context, it means to go make the earth an incredible place for human beings to flourish. So what God is telling Adam and Eve, and, and, and us as well, is that we were put here to do two things, fill the earth with redeemed images and, and make the earth an incredible place for those images to flourish. In fact, if we look at verse 7, and I'll read it again, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord for it on its behalf. For its welfare, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, the word welfare is used three different times there. Another passage says, work for the peace and prosperity of the city that I've carried you in the exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it flourishes, you too will flourish. Same words, right? But the word translated there as welfare, and in that second passage as flourishing, is the Hebrew word shalom. Now, it's interesting. The Hebrew word shalom is typically translated as peace, or in this passage, welfare. But that's far too weak a translation. Let me give you the best definition I've come across for the word shalom, the biblical word shalom. Shalom is the webbing together of God, 
humans, and all creation. Injustice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The full flourishing of human life in all respects, just as God intended. You see, it's interesting. When God tells Adam and Eve that this is their job description, think about it. There's perfect shalom in the garden. But what does God tell Adam to do? Go make more shalom. See, because there never can be enough shalom. One author says this. When God created the heavens and the earth, he wove it all together like a million silk threads, forming a dazzling garment never seen before. Each thread passing over, under, and around millions of others to create a perfectly tightly woven, interdependent, amazing whole. This wondrous webbing together of God, man, and all creation is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. Shalom is a word packed with hope for a broken, bruised, and wounded world. It speaks of wholeness, right relationships, justice, salvation, and righteousness, all of which can be missed when we simply read the English word peace. The word shalom and its counterpart in Greek, we know the New Testament is written in Greek, not Hebrew. And that word is Irene, where we get the woman's name, Irene. Those two words are found, and, and their different um, combinations, are found over 550 times in our Bible. Let me give you two quick examples. We say in Isaiah, we read Isaiah tells us that one of the names for Jesus is the Prince of Peace, you say, right? That's wrong. It's not the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Shalom. You see, he's not a prince that's going to come back and stop people from fighting. He's a prince that's going to come back and put everything back the way it was supposed to be. One of the reasons Jesus came the first time and one of the reasons he came the second time is to restore shalom to his creation and to you and me. Let me give you another example in the New Testament. We read in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We read that and think, well, blessed are people who do racial reconciliation or some kind of something like that, right? That's not what that means at all. What that's saying is, blessed are those who come through the work of their hands, reweave shalom here in the in the present now present world, and in a way push things back a little bit closer to the way they're supposed to be. They will be called the sons of God. In fact, it's interesting. If we really ask ourselves, why did God make all this? Why did he make the creation? Why did he make everything we see around us? The answer is really pretty simple. He made it all that he might be glorified. And I would argue, when is he glorified the most? He's glorified the most when things work like they are supposed to like they did on that sixth day of creation. And what did he say about it? It's very good. 
But unfortunately, today we live in a broken world. Things don't work the way they're supposed to work. But one of the things that we're called to do, those of us who are in Christ, is to bring glory to him in everything we do. Paul says, whether you eat or drink, do everything to the glory of God. In fact, it's interesting if you look at the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The first question it asks is, what's the chief end of man? The answer is simply this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, the more we reweave shalom, the more we push things back a little closer to the way they're supposed to be, knowing that we'll never get there until Jesus comes back again. Let me give you um, the sermon in a sentence. We've heard that before, right? So the sermon this morning in a sentence is simply this. The purpose of our work, the why, if you will, of our work is to bring flourishing to the communities God has called each one of us to serve. And this is certainly true in our vocational calling, where we spend a lot of time. And it really doesn't matter what that calling is. If God's put you there, the purpose is to reweave shalom. It's to, it's to bring flourishing, biblical flourishing, that glorifies God, that serves the common good, that furthers his kingdom. It's to bring that type of flourishing, that biblical idea of shalom, to the community that God's called you to serve, no matter where you work. It also applies to the work that we do that we don't get paid for, right? The work we do in our families. The purpose of that work is to, is to relieve shalom, bring flourishing to the people that we've been called to serve, our other family members. It's the same way in our community, the work we do in our communities. We're to bring flourishing to the people God has called us to serve. Even in our churches, we're all supposed to be working in the church. Same thing. The why is to bring flourishing, to bring shalom to the church that we worship. Let me give you two uh, quick takeaways. The first is simply this. We all long for shalom, but you will never find true shalom until you have an encounter with the Prince of Shalom. You see, everyone knows what shalom is deep down inside. There's a reason when someone sees a tragedy, either man-made or, or tragedy in nature like the hurricane, and they see the damage that it causes, what's the first thing they say? This is not the way it's supposed to be. How do they know that? It's interesting. C.S. Lewis once said, I, I would never know what a crooked line is unless I'd seen a straight line. Well, see, the reality is deep down in the heart of every man is this deep desire for shalom. We're hardwired for it. Yet without an encounter with the Prince of Shalom, we'll never experience it. It's interesting. Adam was given this task to fill the earth with images and subdue the earth, but he failed because he re uh, revolted against God. And in his sin, in his sinful nature, he was unable to do what God had asked him to do. 
Paul tells us that Jesus comes as the second Adam and, and does the things that Adam should have done. And one of those things is this idea of, of what we call the cultural mandate, filling the earth with images and subduing the earth. Now, here's an interesting thing. Adam, when he was given this assignment initially, was given a helper, his wife Eve, to help him perform the tasks associated with this cultural mandate, filling and subduing the earth. Jesus Christ is the second Adam, is also given a helper, his bride, the church, to help him fulfill the cultural mandate. So see, we are to go out and work with Christ to fill the world with redeemed images and then create a world in which those images flourish. And that's everyone, everyone in the creation. We're to bring flourishing to everyone, even to those who will never voluntarily bow and move to Jesus Christ. They're still part of the creation. God wants to see his creation flourish. So let me close with one last story. We believe Jesus healed the blind man, right? We believe that he fed the 5,000. I'm a good Presbyterian. You don't have to say amen. Just kind of nod your head. I just want to make sure you're still with me, okay? Did Jesus heal everyone that was sick in Israel? No, of course not. Did he feed everyone that was hungry? No. So the real question you should ask yourself is, why didn't he? Now, if we had a, we had a real theologian up here like Bill Fulov, and we asked him that question, he would tell us because Jesus was demonstrating his power and authority as the Son of God. And of course, that's true. But I think there's another reason that ties back to what we've been talking about. And it's simply this. When Jesus healed the blind man, he was showing them there could be a time when no one's blind. When he fed the 5,000, he's showing them there could be a time when no one's hungry. And see, as his disciples... We're to go and do likewise. We're to go out into the world using the gifts and the talents that he's given us to reweave shalom for people who desperately need to see what flourishing, what shalom looks like. See, we, like Christ, are to give them a taste of shalom because what that does, it points back to the prince of shalom but it also points forward to a time, and we read about this in the book of Revelation, when there will be no one hungry, and there will be no one sick, and Christ will dry every tear from every eye, and we'll live in a place where there's perfect shalom. And guess what? We'll go make more shalom, because the more shalom we make, the more God's glorified. And that's what we've been called to do. So as you think about uh, on this Labor Day, as you think about what God's called you to do that work, and I'd say you're going to be doing it tomorrow, but most of you will be doing it Tuesday. Think about how do I relieve shalom in the things he's called me to do. As I work through a spreadsheet, as I clean up the house, as I come and help people park on a Sunday morning, all those things ways that God can use us to relieve shalom. See, the one thing I want to leave you with is this. 
and we'll talk about this a lot more in the Sunday school class, there's inherent goodness in the work we do. Even if no one even else sees it. There's inherent value in the work we do every day, particularly if you do it to the glory of God, to serve the common good, and to further his kingdom in his place in this time. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we would ask you even this morning to help us work for the peace and the prosperity of the city that you've called us to, Washington, D.C. Father, help us pray to the Lord for it on a regular basis. And Father, help us understand so clearly that we will only find the shalom that we desperately seek when we first have an encounter with the Prince of Shalom. And then we work to bring shalom to other people. Be with us. Bless us even this day. In Jesus' name, amen.